0: Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Jesus and we thank You for the Spirit of God. Lord, we thank You that You have drawn us and forgiven us and redeemed us through our Lord and Savior. And this morning, Lord, I pray for that person who comes here and finds themselves in a situation of emptiness or hurt or guilt or wickedness. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would convict of sin, but Lord, that you would provide hope and mercy and grace. Lord, I know that you have created us and prepared us, not that we live apart from you, but that we know you and love you and have friendship and fellowship with you. And so, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do only what your Holy Spirit can do. Connect us. To you and to each other. In Jesus name. Amen. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20, the Lord Jesus prays. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I've known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, And will declare it, you loved me may be in them, and I in them. That the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Someone once said to me, show me your prayers, and I'll show you your heart. And that's exactly what Jesus does in John chapter 17. He shows us his prayer. And as he shows us his prayer, he shows us his heart. In this chapter, Jesus prays for himself in verses 1 through 5. He prays for the disciples in verses 6 through 19. And then Jesus prays for the church. Every disciple in every generation. Already in the prayer, Jesus has spoken of salvation in verses 1 through 5. Sanctification in verses 6 through 19. And now Jesus prays about glorification. In verse 22, he says, I have given them the glory you gave me. There is a sense in which every believer is already glorified and seated at the right hand of the Father. We are in heavenly places with Christ now. That is from God's perspective. I once had a conversation on my radio program with a person, and the person said, that's your point of view. And I said, you're exactly right. I have a point of view. You have a point of view. But God only has points to view. God sees everything completely and fairly and appropriately Paul had an understanding of that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, where Paul writes, For he that is the Father raised us from the dead along with Christ, and we are seated with him in the heavenly realms, all because we are one with Christ Jesus. Paul had the veil torn away for a split second and was able to see what few people are able to see, and that is reality from God's perspective. We are in heaven now with Christ. Jesus has prayed for our unity in verse 11, our security in verse 12, our tranquility in verse 13, our protection in verses 14 through 16, our mission, Our sanctification in verse 17. Our mission in verse 18. And now the Savior's attention turns to the Apostles' posterity. That's you and me. The posterity of the apostles are all who have heard the message of hope in Christ Jesus, who have responded to the message of hope, who have heard the the clear gospel that Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. As a matter of fact, in verse 20 through 23, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word that they all may be one. Jesus believed future Christians would be united. That is, one. Paul believed Christians are one in Christ Jesus. So he speaks of the the posterity. Those are the people who come to Christ in faith. But he also speaks of their destiny. That you're going to heaven. And that is shocking when you consider who you are and where you've been and what you've done. Jesus prays for unity on the earth and then he prays for community in heaven. William Barclay writes, as Jesus saw it and prayed for it, it was to be precisely that unity which convinces the world of the truth of Christianity and the place of Christ. It's more natural for men to be divided than united, it's more human for men to fly apart than to come together. Real unity between all Christians would be a supernatural fact and it would require a supernatural explanation. So Jesus prays for safety or protection in verse 14. I gave them your word and the world hated them. God's word determines this world's attitude toward you and toward me. Jesus gave the world God's word and they rejected him. By now you probably realize that truth has the power's powerful ability to unite. But make no mistake about it, the truth also has the powerful ability to divide. The world won't accept God's word. The word exposes and reveals the false philosophies and the wicked man made religions and the word exposes the false wisdom of human beings. The world hates God's word. And then the world hates those who proclaim God's word. And so Jesus prays for protection. He also prays for purity. That is sanctification. Jesus prays to the Father about their purity. But in the purity, remember, based on the truth. Look again in verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Clearly, the word of God is the uniting factor. But it's also the separating force. Now, let me be clear about this. Truth unites, truth divides, truth brings wisdom, but truth also is supposed to not simply bring wisdom, it's supposed to bring transformation. The Greeks desire to know more. The same is true today. There are scientists, there are philosophers, there are learned people who want to know more and they want to know more, but they're not necessarily willing to embrace a holy life. But that's what the Word of God does. It doesn't just simply tell you the truth about your circumstances, but it gives you a mechanism whereby you can be changed. We're sent into the world, Jesus said. Even so, that is, in the sense that Christ was sent, We are sent in a parallel fashion. Jesus sends the apostles into the world with the message of truth and with the message of hope. The world becomes at once both a battlefield and a mission field. Not a real battlefield, a spiritual battlefield. Because we are engaged in a war, but it's a war of ideas. What kind of a God is God? What is the real, true circumstance that human beings face? In what way are we sent? Well, with orders and authority. The Father prepared the Son. The Father equipped the Son. The Father supported the Son. The Father loved the Son. And so the Son sends us equipped, supported, and loved C. Neil Strait once wrote, quote, Prayer lifts the heart above the battles of life and gives it a glimpse of God's resources, which spell victory and hope. Our resources include protection and purity and truth and love. And so Jesus prepares and prays that we would have the necessary resources to succeed on the spiritual battlefield, but also. On the mission field. Look what it says in verse 20. I do not pray for these alone. That is, the apostles who are accompanying him at that very moment, but also for those who believe in me through their word. The apostles would have a message. The message would be the message that Jesus imparted to them. And that's why we refer to ourselves as an apostolic church. We are apostolic in the sense that Jesus imparted a message to the apostles. The apostles imparted that message to others who imparted it to others, and it's been received by us. John's gospel doesn't mention the word church, yet the church is here. By the time John wrote the gospel, the church was a powerful force in the world. In the book of Acts, you'll remember that the people in Jerusalem complained concerning the apostles because they had literally turned the world upside down with their message. And the message went out. Peter, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas pushed the limits and went all the way to India. The apostles clearly remained in Jerusalem for a while, but then they went all around the world and the Romans had done a remarkable job of leveling Jerusalem and scattering the saints. But the apostolic mission wasn't to bring in a millennial kingdom. It wasn't to reform or revitalize Judaism, but to be the instruments of the Holy Spirit to bring in a new God created entity called the church to worship God, to bring people to Christ, to build up the believers, to impart the teachings of Jesus to a new generation, to write the New Testament. Jesus knew all. Jesus could see every believer in every church, in every generation. And all who would believe as a result of what Christ had done. All who would believe based on what the apostles preached. But make no mistake about it. The prayer of Jesus and the apostles preaching prepared the world. You see, if you believed in Jesus as a result of the testimony of the apostles, then this prayer is for you. And look at verse 21. That they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. The Father and Son are in a personal relationship. They are one in love. The Lord Jesus prays for the future believers, for the church in every age and every generation. He prays for unity. But remember... Don't take the unity out of the context. This is unity of love. This is unity in holiness. This is unity in mission. Some people have seen this prayer of Jesus as a great disappointment. As an unanswered prayer. Jesus is praying for unity of heart and unity of spirit. By the way, there's a big difference between unity and unanimity. Unity is the mechanism where two people share the same heart and the same vision and the same circumstance. Unanimity is where everybody is alike. You cut your hair the same. You wear the same dress. You wear the same... Outfit, you live in the same kind of house and you speak the same way and you carry the same way, the same Bible. This prayer isn't a unity of administration or organization. It's not about ecclesiastical uniformity. Read the text. This is unity of personal relationship. And it seems odd to me that people read the text and ignore the context. And then ignore the theology of the prayer. The Father has sent the Son. The Son has empowered the apostles. And the apostles have gone forth. John Phillips writes, quote, Here are both a mystical oneness and a manifest oneness. That means something invisible, by the way. and visible." Phillips writes, What we have in the world today is a church divided against itself. Torn into factions, large and small. There's the Roman Catholic Church. There's the Greek Orthodox Church. There's the Coptic Church. There are state churches. There are various non-conformist, nonconformist denominational churches. There are cults. There are quasi-Christian cancers on the body of the church. Unsaved people look at the church and see Baptists and Brethren, Methodists and Mormons, Presbyterians and Pentecostals, Catholics and Congregationalists, and they are both skeptical and confused, unquote. But remember, the unbeliever sees the external. They don't see the internal circumstance of a heart that's attached to Christ and a Christ that's attached to the Father. I think Barclay is right when he says, and I quote, Christians will never organize their churches all the same way. They will never worship God the same way. They will never even believe all precisely the same things. But Christian unity transcends those differences because Christian unity unites people in love. The cause of Christian unity at the present time And indeed, all through history has been injured and hindered because men love their own ecclesiastical organization, their own creed, their own ritual more than they loved each other. If we really loved each other and really loved Christ, no church would exclude any man who is Christ's disciple. Only love implanted in hearts by God can tear down the barriers which have been erected between each other and between the churches, unquote. And that's right. You see, there is something almost magical that happens. When you meet a person who knows the Father and who knows the Son, who've been born again by the Holy Spirit, who love the Lord, who loves the things of God, who love the Word of God and who love the truth of God, and there's an immediate identification that takes place more so than with your own physical father, your own physical mother, your own physical brothers and sisters, you may share a common gene pool by those who begat you but there's a supernatural manifestation that comes when you've been born again by the power of God through the holy spirit and your spirit recognizes their spirit and in verse 22 it says and the glory which you gave me I have given and the glory which you gave me I have given them that they may be one just as we are one So how are we to understand the prayer of Jesus? Well, the mystical unity is in fact intact. The manifest unity is in fact not intact. The mystical unity is intact because we are, listen carefully, wholly, completely, indivisibly one. Again, my friend John Phillips writes, There is no schism in the mystical body of Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He is the head. We are the members. Each member is washed in his blood, energized by the Spirit, united to Christ, perfect and complete in Him. That's what Paul writes in Colossians. You are complete in Him. It can't mean incomplete. And then Phillips writes, This refers to the local church, be Baptist or some other kind of church, to any local body of believers who love the Lord Jesus, who are saved by grace, who are seeking to walk in the light of God's word, who are drawn together for worship and fellowship and Christian service, holding fast to the truth that is in Christ. Here the Lord is praying for unity and peace within these local congregations of His people, then as the ungodly look on, as the ungodly are introduced to the church, they're convinced that this is of God. They believe in Christ for themselves because they have seen and sensed Christ in the midst of His people. So, listen carefully. It isn't just simply a doctrinal statement, although that is important. But it is an organic oneness brought about by the very presence of God. And then when you read, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one. What does the Lord mean? Leon Morris writes, quote, just as the true glory was to follow the path of lowly service culminating in the cross, So for them, the true glory lay in the path of lowly service where it might lead them. Listen carefully. There is a supernatural unity. There is a historical unity. That means we hear, believe, and respond to... The teaching that has been given by the apostles, but there isn't just a supernatural unity and there isn't just a historical unity. There is a unity based on the fact that we not only believe what the apostles taught, listen carefully, but then we do what the apostles did. We love each other. We serve one another. We minister to the poor and the needy. We love the Lord. We love each other. We love our enemies. And in John chapter 17, verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and that you have loved them as you have loved me. In other words, unity is becomes an evangelical imperative. Do you understand what I mean when I say that? What I mean when I say that is that the world looks at you and your love for the Lord and your love for each other and your love for an unbelieving world and it isn't simply what you say but who you are and what you do that becomes a compelling argument to believe the claims of Christ. As a matter of fact, in verse 23, where it says, I in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Verse 23 in the New Living Translation reads this way, I in them, you in me all being perfected into one, then the world will know that you sent me and will understand that you love them as much as you love me. And this is where we fall off the cliff. Because I have no idea exactly what that means, but I'm going to try and help you with a few things. The passage in the Greek language translates as much, where it says that you love them as much or even as to the same degree. Jesus is telling us that God loves those who are Christ's to the same degree and in the same way that he loves Christ. Do you understand what I just said? I'm going to have to repeat it. Jesus is telling us that God loves those who are Christ's to the same degree and in the same way that he loves Christ. Jesus has prayed for supernatural unity. Based on unity in the Godhead, modeled and enabled by the Godhead, the unity is possible because all believers are united to Christ, not simply by core beliefs, but by a corporate attachment to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. When we collectively draw close to Jesus, we are in fact drawing closer together to one another and in direct proportion to our focus and our fellowship and our worship of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what? You become closer and closer to one another. And so, In this verse, in verse 23 and in the verses that follow, verses 24 and 26, John uses the now familiar words agapeo, which means love. And agape, which is the noun. So you have the verb, something that you do, and the noun, something that you are. And the word agape, remember, it's the highest form of love. This is the unselfish love. This is loyal love. This is devoted love. This is the love that describes the Father's feelings and affection and sentiment. It describes feelings, sentiment, and affection that the Father has towards the Son. But it's more than feeling and it's more than sentiment. It is actual will. It isn't simply feeling or affection. It's the exercise of a divine will. It's the ability to make a divine choice, a choice that originates in the nature and the character of God and then chooses to do not simply what is right, but what it always has longed to do. And in verse 24, it says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me be with me where I am that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So he's he prays, Father, this is my desire, that they who you gave me may be with me where I am. In what sense? I think in a total sense. If I'm here on the earth, I want them here with me. If I'm in heaven, I want them with me. If I'm on Mars, I want them with me. And look, that they may behold my glory which you've given me. You know, I saw a television special where an Olympic athlete had won a gold medal and he received the medal on the platform and then he took the medal off and he put it around his father's neck because he wanted his his father to, to share Recently, when Phil Nicholson won a PGA tournament at the end of the last putt on the 18th hole, he gathers his family together because he wants all of his family to enjoy that moment in the sun. Jesus is, in effect, praying a prayer. And it should cause you to ask maybe one of the most important questions that could ever be asked. Why should anyone get to go to heaven? And the answer in part is found right here in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me will be with me. Because Jesus wants it that way. Have you ever been in a home where someone said, It's what my mom wants, and she gets what she wants. It's what my grandma wants, and she gets what she wants. It's what my father wants, and they get what they want. Guess what? You get what you want in direct proportion to who you are. Every person who has placed their hope and faith in Jesus, who've been born from on high by the Spirit of God, everyone whom the Father has given to the Son will be with Jesus in heaven. Listen, because that's the way He wants it. Heaven is incomplete without the precious cargo that the Father has given to the Son. The word translated, I desire or I will or I want is a Greek word that expresses determination but it's more than that it's more than determination it's pleasure it's delight it's aspiration this is what he wants, what he longs for Jesus prays his desire, but it's a desire rooted in his deity. Now, let me try and help you understand what, what it is that you're reading. On his deathbed, the Scottish reformer John Knox had John 17 read to him every day. In the closing moments of his life, it was this prayer and these words that brought him The most comfort. And clearly it's comforting to know that Jesus will deliver us from this life, from the pain and from the sorrow. But it's something altogether different to say that Jesus longs for your presence. Let me try and illustrate. Imagine you have a relative. Imagine you have a niece or a nephew. Imagine the niece or the nephew may have been arrested for crimes. Imagine the niece or the nephew is mildly autistic, maybe even blind. Imagine that her mother and her father die in a tragic accident. And your wife asks you, well, what should we do? And you might think about it and say, clearly the child is troubled and it's a special needs child. And I don't really want to have to care for her. But I still think that we should because it's the right thing to do. Because it would be better than that child going to foster care. Or we might be able to find another home for the child. But right now, bringing this child to us is the right thing to do. I promised her mother, I promised her father that I would look after her. But now imagine your wife says... I've prayed for her every day. I've loved her every single day. I've prayed and imagined what it would be like to love her and be with her and provide for her and watch her grow up and become the woman of God that God always intended for her to be. That's what Jesus is praying. Not that you should be in heaven because it's the right thing to do. Not because it's a merciful thing to do. Not because you're a sinner and going to hell is a bad deal. Not because it's just compassionate. Not simply because it's right. It's because He loves you. You are his jewel. You are his crown. Robert Murray McShane, in his sermon on this passage, it contains this amazing single sentence. He writes, in truth, Christ cannot lack you. It's, It's a Scottish way of saying he has to have you. He cannot lack you. You are his jewel. You are his crown. Robert Murray McShane says, heaven wouldn't it be heaven if you're not there? On my show last week, a, a, a college student called about her atheistic, skeptical, agnostic unbelieving friends who have introduced to her the idea that they can't stand the idea of going to heaven without their family without their friends without their loved ones they can't even imagine such a thing but they're beginning at the wrong place They're suggesting for a moment that somehow their love and their affection and and their unity with their loved ones somehow transcends the love and the unity that God has for you. That's what Jesus is praying. Let it soak inside of you. Let your heart soar for just a moment. Into the highest heaven, into joy unspeakable, in praise, in wonder, as you consider what Jesus is praying. I have to have you. Now think about it the Father loved the Son before the world began. No matter how well someone knows the Son, no one knows the Son better than the Father. And no one has known the Son longer. And the apostles loved Jesus and trusted Jesus, but that love and trust was imperfect and incomplete. And so Jesus says, I want their love. And I want their trust. And I want it in a complete way. And look at verse 25. Oh, righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. The Lord calls God Father in verse 1. Holy Father in verse 11. And now here and only here that we know of in the New Testament, Jesus calls God righteous Father. Father. And when he draws attention to the righteousness of God, he automatically brings attention to the fact that we're unrighteous. He is good and we are not. He is pure and we are not. He is righteous. In our day, we've heard from the silent majority and the moral majority. But Jesus now prays a sad lament for the blind majority. Jesus came and taught us about the Father. He conducted Himself in such a way that we could have a grasp of who God is and what God is all about. But then Jesus reminds us that the world doesn't know the Father. Your unbelieving family, your unbelieving friends, the unbeliever who comes on the radio and the unbeliever who comes on the television who says, you can't know God and this is nonsense and Christianity is nonsense and your faith is nonsense. Jesus says, but I have known you. I know you. No one knows God the Father better than God the Son and no one has known Him longer. So why wouldn't you trust His judgment? Before this world or any world began, the Son was in close, eternal communion with the Father. Before any angel was formed, before the first particles combined to form the first star, before this galaxy and every galaxy surrounding us, the Son has known the Father. In the silence of eternity past, the Father has always loved the Son and the Son has always loved the Father and the Spirit and the Spirit has always loved the Father and the Son and they have been in constant contact, constant conversation. The mystery of being, the mystery of eternal love, the mystery of eternal joy, the mystery of eternal fellowship, completely satisfying, holy and eternally content. And then he makes that remarkable statement. And these have known that you sent me. Do they know everything about God the way that Jesus does? No. But at least they grasp one important issue. The apostles get it at least on one level. They get it that the Father sent the Son in the small, imperfect way. The apostles understand and believe that Jesus came from the Father, the Creator God, the self-existent God, the eternal, immortal, invisible God. The Father has sent the Son. And in verse 26, it says, and I have declared to them your name and will declare. Declare it in that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. I have no idea how to even talk about this other than to say this. The word declared means to exegete. It means to declare. But it means to do it properly and appropriately. It means... In the Middle Eastern culture, when someone declares someone's name, the right thing to do is to properly represent the nature and the character of that person. Throughout the Old Testament, the name of God was revealed and then connected to some particular need that human beings possessed. We don't have holiness, but God is holy. We don't have righteousness, but God is righteous. Everything that we need, He has. The nature of God becomes the necessary resource. And Jesus calls His Father righteous. Holy Father speaks of His absolute holiness. And of course reveals our sinfulness. God is almighty because we are weak. He is high and we are low. He is everlasting and we are temporal. The expression and will declare it probably means future revelation of the Father through the Son and the Holy Spirit that the apostles will receive and write. I think it's a reference to the Bible. It's this document that you're reading and that I'm reading. Our sin and our failure evokes new and challenging revelations about God. How do we explain a person who loves you and cares for you and considers you every moment. Jesus cares about our enjoying and experiencing the love of the Father and the love of the Son not just on a theological level, but on a daily basis. And that's why he says that the love with which you loved me may be in them. What? A supernatural love? An eternal love? A selfless love? The word love, the reoccurring word love, soaks and savors and Flavors the gospel. In New Orleans, where I come from, people eat a lot of sad things. And by that I mean they'll say, Hey, well, what you're going, say, share, what are you gonna have for dinner tonight? Whatever we're gonna drag out of the river. But whatever you drag out the river, Shale, man, it could taste like dirt, it could taste like mud. That's right, we put some black and Spice on that. Man, we put the cage in spice, we make it all nice and tasty so that you could be eating filth and it tastes good. It tastes yummy. That's what the Lord does. He seasons you, He takes the filthiness and the wickedness and the destructive circumstances of your life, and everything that is horrible and wicked. And he begin to pour some of that good, godly Cajun sauce all over the top of you, and then he flip you in the fire, and then he flip you again, and he flip you in the fire again. And pretty soon you'd be tasty. You'd be tasting good. And once you have that tiny taste in your mouth the whole world begins to taste better. When we pray, we pray for power. The strength or ability to bear things. We pray, Lord, help. Give me the strength to put up with my husband. Give me the strength to put up with my wife. Lord, give me the strength to bear these children. Lord, give me the strength to to deal with these people, these people at church and these people in the world. But few people pray, Lord, help me love my wife the way You love me. Help me love my husband the way that You love me. Help me love my children the way that You love me. Help me to love my friends the way that You love me. Help me to love my enemies the way You love me when I was an enemy to You. And see, when you pray for power, you pray for the ability to bear the burden that you have. But when you pray for love, you know what you're praying you're praying to be different you're in effect saying I want to change Could we with ink the ocean spill were every stalk on earth a quill were the whole of heaven a parchment made and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. And in the prayer, Jesus bleeds heaven for all of its wealth and all of its treasure and decides to give it to you. Recently, a friend of mine died. Whenever a person dies, it's pretty normal for a person to ask the question, what did he leave? The single word reply? Everything. Everything. He didn't take anything with him. Everything that he had in this life, he left. And everything that Jesus has, all that he has ever had and all that he will ever have, he decides to give to you. The King there in His beauty without veil is seen. It were a well-spent journey though seven depths lay between. The Lamb with His fair army doth on Mount Zion stand and glory, glory dwells in Emmanuel's land. The prayer? Heaven won't be heaven unless you're there. Remember what we said? Jesus prays, I go to prepare a place for you. And then he says, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to prepare you for that place. Jesus sends the Spirit to prepare you. And then Jesus goes to heaven to prepare the place for you. Jesus makes sure you have the right to go to heaven. And then he makes you right for that place. How do you explain that? Heavenly Father, I pray for that person. Who's just now, perhaps just just now they're beginning to understand that heaven isn't a place to go simply to avoid going to hell. But it's a place that contains not just the possibility but the actuality of a real love relationship with a real God. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray for that man, for that woman whose heart feels so empty, that feels so hurt, that feels so neglected, that feels so broken, that feels so dry. Lord, I pray that you would fill them up. Lord, I pray that their heart is the cup and you would fill them up and that they would drink that, Lord, that they would taste love, that they would taste Your presence, that they would begin to understand what it means to to live a life of forgiveness and hope, of redemption and reconciliation to You. Heavenly Father, I pray that they would pray a simple prayer of repentance, of acknowledging their sin, of their willingness to turn from their sin, of their willingness to appropriate Jesus. Lord, I pray that they would pray, pray a prayer like, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that I need a Savior. And Lord, I, I'm beginning to understand that heaven isn't just simply a place where you go because it's a, a good thing. It's, it's so much better than the alternative. But it's the only thing. It's the singular desire that Jesus has always had to love you and to be with you. Lord, I pray that they would begin to understand that. That as they turn from their sin and they turn to You and they acknowledge their wickedness and embrace Your forgiveness, that they would experience hope and new life and love. In Jesus' name, Amen.